Yeah, and I'll double I'll double down on that too. We often hear builders get asked, why won't you build housing that's more affordable to a first-time buyer or entry-level buyer? The National Association of Home Builders did an, ass an assessment. Local and state regulations contribute 35% to the cost of a new single-family built home. So it's those uh, rezonings, it's the process and the fees. It's the time cost, frankly. Um, as you all know, you can put in, a, you know, a application to build new housing and it takes 18 months, two years, whatever, of carrying costs. And that that contributes to the extra cost of, of home building. And that's one reason why we're not getting enough housing and we're not able to produce housing yeah. that is you at those entry the level price points, one, for sure. For the lack of entry level pricing is the affordability and cost of the of yeah. the builder. Right. To come in and say, hey, we're going to build a community yeah. in Northern yeah. Virginia, sub five hundred thousand dollars. They can't do it. Yeah. 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 And I mean, there are a lot of obstacles, right? Whenever you're in this like densely populated area, land is really expensive and land can be, you know, it depends on where. 10, yeah, I mean, 20, if you're in Maryland, it's probably like 60 percent of, of it because so, the People's Republic of Maryland. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to start the Virginia, Maryland debate. I have to stay neutral in this debate, but it does go back to this point about how regulation, local and state regulation, does have an impact. And, and localities and states make regulations for lots of good reasons. Don't get me wrong. There are lots of uh, benefits that they're trying to protect, but I'm not sure that the thought process always goes all the way through to how that impacts you know, families being able well, to buy a home you mentioned, in, right, in the and, community. And the thresholds. Like at, so you say, hey, it can't really clap, but we're reaching the upper limits mm -hmm. of how far could we possibly go? I'm out. So when I look at this and I talk to agents yeah. that are in the yeah. field, just a perfect example. I'm out this weekend hosting a listing. $1.2 million listing. Yeah. That's a rehab. 110 people came through that yeah. house. Yeah. So I'm looking at that going, spring's yeah. here. You once said, and it, not too long ago, <sighs> hey, we're in for a freakishly weird January. So I'm here to tell you, I'm seeing it. Okay. But <laughs> I see that and go, uh -huh. I know where I'm at. And that's a rehab project on 1.2. So to say that we're at the upper limits, what? Yeah. What's going to, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I will, um, look, uh, we, we do a survey every month of, uh, our bright MLS subscribers who work with the buyer in the prior month. And, you know, 40% of the buyers last year in our market were, uh, in the New Jersey to Virginia market were first time buyers. And I, I trust the data, but I, I still, and part of that is because there are so few repeat buyers in the market, right? Because they're holding on to their mortgage and they don't want to. I heard lower numbers. of a 40%, yeah. That and, high. and I think, but like I said, the reason is primarily because there's fewer repeat buyers, not less of the, it's not like the first time buyer numbers have, have increased that much. But I keep asking myself, not just first time buyers, but even those 110 folks going through your $1.2 million listing, like, you know, um, where, where are they coming from? Are they... I, the majority, I imagine, are, are selling, and I think that's one reason why the market has continued to be so so resilient, even with high prices, is we have so much equity in our homes right now. So when you do go to sell and to buy the next home, you have a tremendous amount of equity that you're able to roll into that next purchase. And in essence, sort of buying down these higher rates that have been in the market for the last year. But at, at what point, though, do we are we... 
you know, are we sort of pushing some people who don't have the equity built up? How, at what point are they pushed out of the market when yeah, a one point two million dollar home is a, is a rehab? That, of that forty percent first home buyer, which is, and I, I know the dynamics of what a first, but a true first time home buyer, right? We're hearing that age kind of drop, go up, you know, north of thirty four, thirty five years old, which I think yeah. unfortunately is going to be even higher. Right. But yeah. I am downsizing so that I am not stuck yeah. in a house with my kids for another 17 years. I'm going to be clear about that. Right. They're on their own. They got to figure this yeah. out. But yeah. that's I don't know what the makeup of that 40 percent is. Right. Yeah. No, I don't either. And I but I think it's a really interesting um, uh, point you make about the first time home buyer of today doesn't necessarily look like the first time home buyer of a decade or two ago. Um, they're older. They uh, may have a little bit more money, right, because they're older and they've been in their jobs longer. They may not want a condo in the city because they've already had that first kid and they want to make their starter home something more permanent that they're going to stay in for longer. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see if that trend sort of shifts Would back or if this is the new normal. So now again, it's varies. like obviously D.C., uh, Virginia, parts of Maryland, very condo heavy. You had into the different areas, mm -hmm. Jersey, Delaware, not as much, mm -hmm. maybe back up again in the Philly. Do you see though? Is there a big disparity between condos sitting, and I understand one, you know, one one studios versus two twos and above. But do you, how do you look at that trend versus the tag yeah. single family townhouse trend? Yeah, yeah, you know, and it is like you. I'm glad you pointed that out. You know, we have we work with data, right? So how people define condos is an ownership structure. Two over two could be a. a type of home not necessarily so it's a little bit it's a little bit murky but at the end of the day we saw that demand for condos really plummeted during the pandemic right people didn't want to be in cities they didn't want to be in an elevator building they didn't want to come into contact with a lot of people since then though 2023 we've seen the share of sales in in our region cities that is dc baltimore city philadelphia city we've seen the share of sales in the cities back up to pre-pandemic norms meaning that people are back looking at the city. And I think they are looking more at condominiums because in some, many cases, that's where the price points are more reasonable. The other thing that, that is going on is in DC and in Philadelphia in particular, lots of new rental construction has come online. So now you're a condo seller. You're not just competing with other properties someone might be looking to buy. You're competing with a lot of nice new luxury apartments where the landlord's giving two months free rent and free parking. <laughs> and that, yeah. Potential first-time homebuyer might say, you know what, I'm going to land for a little that bit. You all brought options. up that I think I just want to land for people listening. Historically, since 1980 to about 2020, 40% uh, of all units that transacted across the U.S. were first-time homebuyers. And what you just brought up was you had 4.09 million units closed last year with 50% of them being between the age bracket, I think what was like 30 to 45 or something like that. The issue that how, why does this matter to me if I'm listening as a real estate agent is that if first time home buyers don't purchase a home until they're 35, you're losing 21 to 35 year olds buying homes and then stepping up into another higher square footage unit in their 35s to 40s. So you're missing sales cycles that actually will remove the units transacted at our high point of like 6.2 uh, million sales back into 2021. Mm -hmm. So I think people understand why we're talking about this because that's going to impact mm -hmm. the long-term piece of your metrics. The other question that I, I want to ask here is that when you look at 2020 was the year of re, refinancing interest-only commercial properties. And there's one thing that I want to debunk mm -hmm. is that there's this whole move in Washington, D.C. through Bowser's administration 
to build and, and develop, right? That's kind of her initiative inside of the policy of DC, which is why you're seeing commercial buildings move to re like residential. Well, yeah, it sounds great and awesome, but when you start going into plumbing stacks, electrical, water, it's not that easy to convert a commercial building. You're usually better off blowing the whole thing up and rebuilding. So what my question is, is that if you have a bunch of regional banks that are holding interest-only notes that were anywhere from three to five-year terms, looking at my watch right now, that tells me 2024, 2025, 2026 are all the dates that you've got to basically have balloon payments that come up and you have to refinance. Well, if we know that interest rates, if they can't make money right now, they can't refinance to an interest rate at 8% on a commercial loan, that means they're going to be handing keys back to regional banks. And if you start handing banks keys back to regional banks, you're going to start to have liquidity issues, which is what you saw in the Silicon Valley Bank and all that disruption that happened in 2023 in the early part of it. So what do you, I don't know if you can even answer this, Lisa, is that what happens when you start seeing, okay, we're at 6.5 right now. And then Q2, Q3, which is usually where they would have been refinancing these buildings, all of a sudden liquidity dries up. You have some defaults by banks. What happens to the housing sector if you have a bunch of properties that have basically defaulted and they can't repurpose them? They can't do anything with them. Now they're holding hard assets and they're not liquid. Yeah, I yeah, I, you know, I this is something that I definitely want to, you know, be paying much more close attention to. And, and I think we all should be. I think it sort of flew under the radar screen. We thought sort of thought the Silicon Valley Bank yeah. and the whatever the other one was up in New York last year. It was like isolated. And I think um, I was just talking to someone yesterday, actually, about the fact that the regional banks here in the Washington area are very highly concentrated in commercial um, in commercial loans. And I think this point you raise about what happens when these payments come up is going to be really tricky. I don't know. I, the answer, as yeah. you point out, is not that they're going to convert them all to housing. Right. I think, um, I, think um, I think a lot of people throw that out there as a solution to our housing shortfall. And um, the, the uh, and all you have to do is go into an office building and say, OK, tell me where the windows are <laughs> in your apartment if you build on this big floor plate. Um, there are really some cool examples in Alexandria and in um, Falls Church, Seven Corners, where they did convert smaller office uh, properties into uh, residential, but they're smaller. They had smaller floor plates. And um, honestly, the one in Alexandria, it's right on the river. It's like $4 million a unit. These are not like entry level homes that they're creating by converting these uh, buildings. Um, so I don't know. I think it's um, I think it's going to be uh, something that we should we should watch. And I, I, I think you've laid out uh, the so issue very well. Like things that people are listening, like I would watch those because that's going to be a big issue in our region because um, they do, I know, like, if you look at, like, uh, Eagle Bank carries a lot of uh, commercial loans on office space. So I think it's important, like, if you're to, to not completely nerd out, but watch the bond market, watch your commercial loans and what's mm -hmm. going on there. And what's been interesting to me is flipping between CNBC and Fox Business. I have not heard anything negative about the housing market. I've heard some negative things about the commercial side. But literally, I'm going back to the Warren Buffett thing of when everyone is joyous, be fearful. When everyone's fearful, be joyous, because that's what I'm I'm like, how are people not looking at this? Because I don't believe Powell's going to move anything until May. I mean, that's when he does that. And then he is going to be isolating himself mm -hmm. from this whole political re election that's going on. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out mm -hmm. in housing. But I think also people need to recognize is that. The big play that you're talking about, Lisa, about these apartment buildings being built is that you have 
hedge funds and sure. venture capital that have all this cash because it's the first time that they, they have they have all this cash and like cash is losing money based on inflation and whatnot. So where do you put it? You put it into hard assets. When you put it into hard assets, what do you want? You want multifamily. Well, if I've got multifamily, my rent roll is going to be a lot better than had it been sitting in some other like ETF or something else that I want to sit in. And if we know everybody has to sit in the house because they have to live somewhere, why wouldn't you do that? And that's the challenge that I see right now about the constraints of individual private property rights, because now everyone's going to these high rises or these apartment buildings and they're giving up their, their real estate rights, which is actually one of the best ways to leverage wealth building. So as agents or real estate people, if VC and Wall Street money is going into housing, I'd be thinking about how do I go into housing and how do I become the landlord on those things? Because I think at least in another tidbit for anybody listening, the only return in real estate right now that I see is multifamilies. Single families don't make money unless you're going into a third tier market. You can see it in Northern Virginia, you can see it in Maryland, you can see it in DC, you're playing an appreciation game where you're not actually cash flowing. So like going through all this economics is that you can't cash flow at 8.5% on a commercial loan right now. And unless you're going into multifamily and you're house hacking. And I think it's important for people to say like, how do I make money? Yeah. Well, there's going to be people. I think this is where we want to pivot over to your, your point on your slide deck, Lisa, is like, what, how do people transact? that it's going to be life events. And I thought that was very insightful. Like, how do you give, we just went through a lot of negative stuff and I want to get out of the darkness <laughs> to give people some light. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, um, I think, um, so uh, I talk a lot about demographics. Uh, we talked a lot about the economy and really demographics are the key driver of the housing market. And um, I heard somebody talk about the four Ds. Mm -hmm. Have you guys heard about the four Ds before? I never heard that before. Uh, throw another the one diapers, in. Diapers, diamonds, divorce, death. There's those five. four Ds. What is it? Oh, I love it. See, I learned something new by coming on. And I think that I think that's a really important way to capture how to think about where the market's going. Now, we talk, I think we've been hearing a lot about uh, rate lock over the last year. <laughs> if I had never heard that phrase again, I'd be happy. The fact that people are not moving because they have a 2.75% loan and they don't want to take out a six and a half or something. And financially, that makes total sense, right? I mean, we don't have to like even like math to realize that 6.5 is higher right. than 2.7 and it's going to be a bigger payment. But the fact of the matter is, you know, life happens. And I really do. I was calling like 2024 the year of life happens, right? Changing financial or family circumstances. You have another kid. That two-bedroom house is not going to work for four kids. Or you have to move to care for an aging parent. Or uh, you get this great job and this one just doesn't happen to be remote and you have to move. And I think we're going to see more and more of that stuff. I think the, the people listing in 2024 are going to be driven primarily by those um, those last couple of Ds, the divorce and the uh, death. And I, death skips an important one too, right? I think the folks um, who may be retiring or who may be sort of waiting to um, to move, they have a lot of equity in their homes. But as you guys point out, the people who just bought, the first time homebuyers who bought a few years ago, they're probably not going to make that move up as soon as you know a prior generation would have, right? They're going to have to hang tight for longer. Um, so I think we are going to see, though, more people listing as financial and family circumstances change. A, how things are being affected, right? Is it's the downsizing market, right? Be, that because of yeah. the people that still have to house their children for longer periods of time, it really does affect that. And where they're downsizing to changes, right? 
did I downsize into my retirement home versus downsizing to a, you know, an actual facility, right? It's changing where we're going. So those second and right. third tier markets, right. 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 that's an interesting look too. Yeah. I, you know, and one of the things that um, I often like to think about is, you know, I ask people, you know, where is the number one place that people move when they retire? And often people will say Florida or Arizona, but the answer is grandkids. And when you see where people most often move, if they do move in retirement, it is to be closer to where their grandchildren live. That's frankly one of the reasons why the Washington area has kept so many baby boomers and older because the kids are also, the grandkids are here because the parents have jobs here. I'm really curious to see what happens because during the pandemic, we saw people in their 20s and 30s, young families moving to Memphis, moving to Austin, moving to um, cities in the Midwest, uh, certainly moving to the Southeast, North Carolina, South Carolina. Is that where the retirees from the Washington area are going to go? They're going to follow yeah, the well, grandkids that affordability um, factor, when they right? do end they up moving. They can um, live in the larger metropolitan areas, right? 100%. Go. And what COVID has allowed and, and people still find out fight this is, is the remote work, right? So with true remote work, which is in flux, right? People yeah. want people to come back. We're recognizing that performance is yeah. suffering to a degree. But there's still a lot of that because that genie's been out of the bottle. It's kind of hard yeah. to take it back. Um, where, where do you, so are there yeah. any yeah. cities that you're seeing like, hey, we're seeing an increase you know, outside of the metro areas? Migration. An increase in people. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the Southeast tends to still be dominating migration, those North Carolina, South Carolina things. It really is, um, you know, it really is quality of life and housing affordability. Uh, again, this person I was talking to yesterday, um, the, we've been seeing an outflow of people between the ages of 25 and 34 from the Northern Virginia region. And when you look at where they're going, they're going to Tennessee, they're going to North Carolina, they're going to South Carolina. But, and it doesn't take, it's not like hard to figure out why, right? Let's say you're going to look around to buy a home and you're going to your $1.2 million list dollar listing and you're like, you know what, if we move to Raleigh, I could get uh, a home for half that and we could live like kings and queens down here in Raleigh. And I think we're seeing that that's more possible when people are able to work remotely. But I, I think it's an open question about, uh, you know, if the pendulum is going to swing back to in-person work and to what extent. Um, I think we're, we're going to be like this for a little while, but, um, but people have been, yeah, moving to places where there's, there's more affordability, um, especially when it comes to home buying. Um, deep thoughts there. I and mean, this is a deep topic, but our agents, unfortunately, when we talk about them, hey, being the local area expert, don't do enough of this type of understanding and research to actually become the local area expert for their people and just kind of regurgitate what they hear in different channels and not actually understand it. Yeah, and I mean, since you since I'm here, I get to plug uh, to make sure you guys know that you can get a lot of local stuff from Bright MLS. I know there's lots of places you can get data. My, as I said at the, at the start, you know, I really am eager to try and make stuff like not just, there's no shortage of data out there. That's not what we want is to shove more data at people, but we try and provide us insights that you can use as you're sitting across the coffee table with, you know, someone thinking about buying or, or selling a home that it's like not just a bunch of a page with a bunch of numbers, but what does it mean for this market as we think about what's going to happen two months, four months, six months out? Yeah, that's, um, that's incredible. Uh, right? you know, people have to be able to understand it so they can express it. And you don't have to go just to the micro level, 
right? Yeah. Of hey, look, this week there's a lot of information that's gonna be dropped, different ports yeah. that are coming out this week. But sure. understanding that those things happen and what was the result of that? Those are the conversations, right? So could kind of wrap us up Definitely. here. I mean, there's it's a couple of takeaways that everybody's listening. Um, and Lisa, if you want to add some color to anything that I bring up, feel free to, or Dave. I heard a couple things. Number one is that um, don't expect any type of massive change in interest rates in the coming two years, just based on your what's going on in the bond sector. I think that's number one, first and foremost. Like You're probably in this market of 7.5 to 6 Point five, somewhere in that, give or take a couple points, um, just based on where we're at with the debt for the U.S. economy. So that's number one. I think number two is watch the consumer debt versus savings. That where how much of the like consumption debt off credit cards and whatnot is increasing, and what is it looking like for like to operate? Meaning, like what's your shelter costs? What's your food costs? What's your travel costs like gas and utilities. I think like as a real estate agent, I'm going to be watching those things because if we start destroying savings because of just living, that you're going to have a harder time with buying power. And I think the third thing uh, to take away from all of this is that in the current environment we're in, this isn't a, hey, I'd love to move. It's because I have to move. So going back to the, I would actually say maybe we have 60s. We have yeah. diapers, diamonds, divorce. Wait downsizing death and deployment um, to realize that now if you want to be close to your consumer, you have to be able to understand life events will dictate their needs in housing and to really understand how do I yeah. create mind share and positioning and communication to my people that I am the local area expert that's going to help you in one of the largest transactions in your life. It's going to make a huge difference, not only in your personal life, but your financial life. And that's what I need to understand my value is um, as a real estate expert. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I'm you know, Just to pick up one quick point on the consumer and the consumer spending. I also think it's really important to um, watch the economic data, sure. But let's watch the data on people's moods, right? Consumer confidence being the kind of the mood measure, particularly in our area, what happens on the federal uh, on the, in the federal government. If we have more. Um, government closures, government shutdowns, if we have a presidential election that goes haywire again, all of that stuff makes people nervous. And when people are nervous, they're less likely to make big decisions and to feel like less eager to, to do a big thing. So I think watching people's anxiety levels in addition to their Dave, pocketbooks is also important. Uh, no, I just, listen, I, I, I thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I reserve the right to recall you for future testimonies as the year goes out to kind of to bring some color to uh, to the conversation around market shifting dynamics. Um, and what I'll be sure to do for those of you listening, uh, if you uh, go to our YouTube channel, we'll make sure that we upload the resource channel from Bright, where you can get all the information that Lisa shared with us and that we uh, used to stem today's conversation. On behalf of Lisa Switzerland, Sounds great. Student, Joe Martin and David Donaldson, thank you for joining us on another episode <laughs> of Entrepreneurial Impact.